since this is my first time back with you since our Generous God celebration on May 9th, I just want to share just a word of reflection on that briefly. And uh, I want to name something for us as a church. I believe that what we experienced in those five weeks, the four weeks of giving culminating in that fifth week, the celebration service on the lawn, I believe that was a taste of what God wants to do through us as a church. And I'm not primarily talking about money. The headline for me wasn't the amount that was given. And it wasn't the fact that our mortgage was paid off. It wasn't even the, the amazing amount that we're able to give away that came in above and beyond the mortgage. That, for me, the headline was about the spirit led us into something and, and we said yes to it and we felt the wind blow. And when I say we, I'm not talking about me and Lloyd and the elders and the staff. That's not the church. This is the church. All of us who call Fellowship Bible Church our home church, we are the church. And we said yes to the leadership of the Spirit, and we saw what God did with that. Now, Here's what I think this gives us a glimpse of. It gives us a glimpse of a church body coming together, not just to consume religious goods and services, but to take seriously the call to follow Jesus, to follow the Holy Spirit. In other words, a group of people not just doing church, but being the church. And a a taste of that, I pray, is going to make us hungry for more. And that's what I believe God has in store for us as we take steps forward toward this mission that God has called us to, to help people find life in Jesus. That's what we're about. And and so what I want to say to us, and then I'm going to move on, I just want to say, let's keep following Jesus together, whatever that looks like. Some of it's money, most of it's going to be in lots of other ways. Let's keep following Jesus together and let's just let him use us in our community and the world. Now, two weeks ago, Mike Vogt started a series in Proverbs, and then last week, Lloyd continued it, and I'm, I'm going to continue that uh, study of Proverbs. I want to give you a preview of where we're going, just so you know, and Lloyd mentioned this last week. We're going to walk in Proverbs until June 20th, and then starting the next week, June 27th, we're going to do a four-week series led by Larry Kayser, who is our marriage pastor, our pastor of marriage ministry, and it's going to be on marriage and relationships, And it's actually, think about this, it's going to be a deep dive on a theology that is incredibly practical. And I know not everybody in the room is married. It's going to be broader than that. It's going to talk about the theology of marriage, but even even deeper theology of relationships in general. I can't think of a more practical topic coming out of this pandemic. Counseling offices are busting to the seams all around, and they're mostly people who are struggling with relationships and marriages maybe as much as anything. So rather than a typical sermon series, I want you to think about this as a mini seminary class on marriage and relationships. And I'm serious when I say no one on our staff is better equipped to teach that class than Larry Kayser is. So get ready get excited. That's coming in a few weeks, uh, starting on June 27th. Now open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9. And we're going to look at one verse this morning. In fact, really only one line of one verse, but I want to set it up this way. Many people, when they think of the Bible, they think of, okay, the Bible is a a life's instruction book. The the Bible is a book of wisdom that God has given to, to human beings. And We know it as much more than that. 
right? And in fact, I'd say if you primarily think of the Bible as, as life's instruction book, you're missing the big idea of the Bible. However, although the Bible is much more than that, it is certainly not less. The Bible contains a ton of wisdom. At the center of all the wisdom of the Bible, there's a particular genre of scripture called the wisdom literature. It's three or four books, um, you know, particularly in the Old Testament, although many would consider the book of James to also be kind of a, a New Testament wisdom literature. So at the center of this book of wisdom, the Bible is the wisdom literature of the Bible. And at the center of the wisdom literature of the Bible is the book of Proverbs. And I'm gonna argue this morning at the center thematically of the book of Proverbs is the verse we're studying today. So in Proverbs 9.10, in my mind, we have arrived at the center of the center of the center of the world's wisdom. Think of this verse like a treasure chest buried in the heart of the earth that contains the most valuable gemstone of wisdom the world has ever known. Now, Let's open the chest together and I'll read this text. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is the living word of God for us today. You are forgiven if those words don't immediately light you up inside. In fact, if, if they failed to do that, it may be because, like any good buried treasure, there's a bit of a lock on the box, at least for our modern Western ears. There are things here to hear that we have trouble hearing. In other words, to fully understand what this verse is saying, you have to understand some key terms, and our English is not doing us any favors in this. It so happens that the critical terms in this verse are some of the most commonly misunderstood for us in our cultural context. So, you know, think, think of it, uh, today's message, a little bit like, like trying to, to work the combination lock of this treasure chest. And we've got three dials on the lock. So three key terms that we need to dig into and unpack this morning. And I'm gonna mark them on the screen so that you see them. Here's what we need to dive into the fear of the Lord. What in the world is that anyway? Is it what we think it is or is it more than that? The word beginning is a small little word, but it's deceptively important to this verse. And then finally, obviously, the context here is wisdom and we need to know what that is all about. Now, I'm gonna focus on that first line, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I'm not gonna talk much about the second line, but notice that these two lines work in parallel as often is the case in Hebrew poetry. That means that they're essentially saying the same thing using different words. What I'm going to focus on is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let's take these three terms in order, kind of spin the dial on the combination lock. The first one I want to talk about, actually, I think I want to do them in reverse order, and you'll see why as I get through it. Let's talk about wisdom first. Let's start with wisdom. And the reason I want to start with wisdom is it's the core of the wisdom literature. Obviously, you cannot understand Proverbs or, or anything that the Bible it claims to espouse as wisdom until you understand what wisdom is. 
And I think we mostly think wrong, wrongly about wisdom. We think of wisdom as knowledge that is practically applied. That's a hint of it, but you've got to dig deeper. So, you know, think about the, if you open up the dictionary and look at wisdom, it's going to say something like the application, the practical application of knowledge. And, and there's much more to biblical wisdom than that. To understand the concept of biblical wisdom and, and, and the fullness of it, you have to understand what the word, the Hebrew word is that's translated into our English as wisdom. It's the Hebrew word chokmah. It is a very important word. Chokmah, it was something to the Hebrew people that their eyes would light up if you started talking about chokmah. Chokmah is that important. Chokmah is one of the most important words in the Hebrew Old Testament. Let's talk about what it means. The preeminent scholar for the book of Proverbs is uh, arguably a man named Bruce Waldke. Uh, he wrote this massive two-volume commentary on Proverbs. It's very academic, it's very scholarly, and he, he rewrote one that was a little easier to understand, kind of like you know Bruce Waltke for dummies, so to speak. But this is what he says about Hokmah. He spends a lot of time in his massive commentary about this. He says, Hokmah is difficult to define because it is a totalizing concept that seeks to bring all of life's activities into harmony with God's created order. That's a good starting place. If your mind can grab, grasp that a little bit, all of life's activities into harmony with God's created order. He goes on to say this. At its core is the belief that God has made the world in, with, and by wisdom. Chokmah. God made the world in, with, and by the wise, therefore, seek to orient all their being and actions to conform with this wisdom. Now, I don't know about you, but as I, as I listened to that and I thought about it and I read it, as I wrote it down, I, I started to get it a little bit, but I'm, it was still fuzzy for me. So I, I want to show you something visually that I think is going to be an, an excellent description of the definition that Bruce Waltke provides for the Hebrew word hokmah. We're going to play an excerpt from one of the Bible Project videos. And I gotta give you just a little bit of context. It's a short excerpt. What you need to know is this comes from a series of videos on the wisdom books of the Bible. And for each wisdom book, they personify it, just to help you understand. They, they give a personality to the book, so to speak. And the personification of the book of Proverbs in this video series is a, a brilliant young teacher. So I want to give you that context so you're not lost when the video starts. So Proverbs is like a brilliant young teacher, and then they're going to talk about Hokmah. Let's go ahead and play that video. We're going to start by meeting the book of Proverbs, the brilliant young teacher. And she's not just smart. She's smart about everything, work, relationships, sex, spirituality. She has incredible insights, things you wouldn't see on your own. Yeah, she would be the perfect friend to have around when you need really specific advice. So what makes her so smart? Well, Proverbs can see things that most people don't see. She believes that there's an invisible creative force in the universe that can guide people in how they should live. And you can't see it, just like you can't see gravity, but it affects everything that we do. So what's this force? Well, in Hebrew, it's called chokmah, and it usually gets translated into English as wisdom. It's an attribute of God that God used to create the world. And Hokmah has been woven into the fabric of things. 
things and how they work. So wherever people are making good or just or wise decisions, they're tapping into chokmah. And whenever someone's making a bad decision, they're working against chokmah. Right, or as it says in Proverbs chapter 1, the waywardness of fools will destroy them, but the one who listens to wisdom lives in security. So it's like a moral law of the universe. Yeah, it's a cause-effect pattern, and no one can escape it. And Proverbs personifies all of this as a woman. Yeah, Lady Wisdom. Right, and she roams around the earth calling out, making herself available to anyone who's willing to listen to her and to learn. Which leads to the second thing Proverbs believes, that anyone can access and interact with wisdom and use it to make a beautiful life for yourself or for others. You can create with it like a designer. Yes, in fact, chokmah in Hebrew isn't simply intellectual knowledge. The word is also used to describe a skilled artisan who excels at their craft, like woodworking or stonemasonry. So you show you possess chokmah when you put it to work and develop the skill of making a good life. Wisdom the way they defined it, is an attribute of God that God used to create the world. And now we have the opportunity to use wisdom as we co-create our world with God. Fascinating concept. I like the way they put it. You show you possess chokmah when you put it to work and develop the skill of making a good life. And of course, that raises the question, what is the good life? You know, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But let's summarize what we've learned. As creator, God designed the world and everything in the world to flourish in a certain way. There's order to the creation, discovering and living out the way God designed you and the world around you to flourish. That's the path of wisdom. That is learning to live by hokmah. So here's how you might define it. I'm going to give you two more descriptions, a little longer one and then, and then a shorter one I'll put on the screen. Here's one way you can grab onto this concept of wisdom. Wisdom is the art of living life in concert with the way God designed life to be lived. The art of living life in concert with the way God designed life to be lived, shorter still, and we'll put this one on the screen. Wisdom is life lived in harmony with God's design. Just maybe a helpful little way to think about the idea of wisdom. Okay, that's the first dial on our combination. Uh, Before I move on though, I want you to think about this. Life lived in harmony with God's design is the good life. It doesn't seem like it to us because like God seems like he's restrictive. He's got all these rules and I don't necessarily want to play by all God's rules. But what the Bible is saying over and over and what any wise person will tell you who's lived a long life and experienced some things is is life lived in harmony with God's design is the good life. And I'd say it this way. um, This good life is what everybody is searching for. It's the substance uh, everybody wants, whether they believe in God or not. They want the good life. They, some people call it happiness. It's just, they'll say, all I want to do is be happy. What they're saying is, I just want the good life. I, I want to live. Some people call it thriving. Others may say, I want to live with no regrets. Others say, I want to flourish, or I want to find peace, or I want to live life to the full. They're all saying the same thing. 
As they're looking for life to the full, they're, 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 they're searching for it. It's, it's wired in us to desire life and not just survival, but, but flourishing. This is why, guys, the writers of Proverbs, over and over and over, this is what they said. Seek chokmah, seek wisdom. Search for it like silver and gold. Trade everything you have to find it. Why? Because wisdom is the key to flourishing. Because it's working in concert with the way God designed life to work. It's life lived in harmony with God's design. That's the Hebrew concept. That's the biblical concept of wisdom. All right. Let's move now to the next dial on our combination lock. We've, we've, we've talked about wisdom. I want to talk about beginning. The word beginning. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This one doesn't need as much time, but this word is also misunderstood. In this context, beginning does not mean the thing you master and then you move on from, like graduating from kindergarten and going on to first and second grade. That's not the idea of beginning. Beginning is more like an underground spring that is the beginning of a river. It is the source of the river. It is, it is the, the life flow of the river. There is no river without the beginning, without the spring that comes up out of the ground to form the river. So here's a, an easy definition or a thought we might uh, add to our combination lock. Beginning in this context is the foundation, source, or fundamental principle of something. So, uh, in fact, let, let, me, let me read to you again from Bruce Waltke. I think this is very insightful. He says, what the alphabet is to reading, what notes are to music, and what numerals are to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is to gaining wisdom. So think about this. You, you never, you're like, you don't learn the alphabet and then, you know, you move on from it and forget it. You, you're always using the alphabet in order to read. For those of you that create music and write music and sing and play instruments and things, you, you never stop using notes. You know, you learn the notes in order to make music. And so the fear of the Lord is the source. It's the foundation. It's the fundamental principle that, that, that creates wisdom. It, it, it spews forth from this concept of the fear of the Lord. There's no wisdom apart from the fear of the Lord. I hope you're starting to say right now in your mind, I really need to know what the fear of the Lord means. And you might even be thinking, I hope it doesn't mean what I think it means. Let's talk about it. Let's turn our attention now to the last dial on this combination lock. It's clearly the most under, misunderstood of our three ideas. The fear of the Lord the phrase occurs 15 times in the book of Proverbs. It occurs many, many, many times more than that in the rest of the Old and New Testaments. I'd say it's one of the most important concepts in the entire Bible. Certainly, you cannot understand Proverbs without understanding this phrase if it is true that the fear of the Lord is the source, beginning of all wisdom. Now, again, this is a big case of our English language not doing us 
much favor here. Um, the first thing that comes to people's mind when they hear the fear of the Lord is um, to be afraid of God, to, to maybe shrink back from him and hide. So of course we think that because that's how we use the word mostly in our English language. So you might be afraid of the boogeyman or you might be afraid of Bigfoot and you're afraid of the Lord. You know, fear of the boogeyman, fear of Bigfoot, fear of the Lord. In some ways, that's the exact opposite of what the phrase means in the Hebrew. Now, I know that that maybe is creating some tension. I hope it is a little bit. Uh, I'm going to step back from it for a second before I step forward into it. Here's the step back. For sure, there is an element of healthy fear involved because we are talking about relating to the God of heaven and earth, the all-powerful, almighty God of the storms, God of life and death, God of everything around us, the most powerful being in the universe. And so there's gotta be some kind of healthy fear related to that. We'll come back to that in a minute. But in the scripture, men and women who feared the Lord did not run away from him. In fact, in the Bible, to be described as someone who feared the Lord meant you had a relationship with God. In ancient times, the question was not whether or not you believed in God, it was which God did you believe in? In other words, which God did you fear? Someone who feared the Lord, which by the way, if you notice in your Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that means that the word in Hebrew is the proper name for God, Yahweh, the personal name of God that God revealed to his people, the one true God, Yahweh. Someone who fears the Lord, Yahweh, is someone who puts their faith in the God of the Hebrews as the one true God of the universe. So to say someone fears God means they believe in him, they have faith in him, they even trust him. You see how this is somewhat the opposite of our idea of fear. Here's maybe another way to think about it. To fear God is actually to move toward him relationally, not run away from him in terror. Interestingly, by the time of Jesus, Gentiles who believed in Yahweh were known as God-fearers. That didn't mean that these were Gentiles that were walking around, you know, in terror of, 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 of Yahweh. No, actually, these were Gentiles that were walking around in belief in Yahweh, who were relating to Yahweh as God, who were worshiping Yahweh as best as they knew how. To fear God biblically is to move toward him relationally, not run away from him. Here's the way we might describe the concept of the fear of the Lord. A relational posture of worship and submission. So in this context, if you think about this, there is a sense of healthy fear, right? Because... To acknowledge God as creator means you also recognize yourself as creation. So it's to put yourself in the proper place before the almighty God who created you. And, and there is this healthy fear that comes in. But I want to say that healthy fear is more like humility 
than it is terror. Fearing the Lord means finding your place in God's world. You ever thought about that? Like, where do I fit in God's world? Does he know me? Is he angry with me? Does he hate me? Is he indifferent to me? Does he love me? Someone who fears the Lord, according to scripture, is someone who's found their place in God's world. It's it's putting yourself in a proper relational posture before God. Well, what does that mean? What's the proper relational posture between a human being and God? Well, for one, creation relating to creator, certainly true. Number two, you could say citizen relating to king, That is certainly true as well. And according to the Bible, more than anything else, this one, dependent child relating to heavenly father. Fearing the Lord is recognizing that he is God and you are not, but it's also recognizing that the God who is loves the human that is you. And it's his love that draws you toward, not away. And so to fear the Lord is to have a relationship with God, a relational posture. That may be the most important word in this definition. Relational posture. What is that posture? Worship. You worship the things you find most life in. Naturally worship those things. And what's the second part of that relational posture? Submission. There's a recognition. He is God and I am not. Or another way to think about it, and and I heard it said this way recently, you know, fearing God is like standing next to the ocean and being reminded of your blessed smallness. Now, I want to put all this together and let's see if we can unlock this treasure chest that, that is this verse. If wisdom is the key to fullness of life and the source of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord, then in a very practical sense, everything comes down to whether or not you fear the Lord, which is another way of saying it comes down to your relationship with the God of the universe. How do you relate to him? Here's another way to say it. The most important thing about your life is how you relate to God. So to think about this very practically, every day you and I make hundreds of decisions. It's probably thousands of decisions, but I'm thinking mostly of, of conscious decisions that we make. You know, it's even something as small as what you're going to eat for lunch later. You know, what time you're going to go to bed tonight. Um, what, how you spend your afternoon, what you, what you watch on your screen, et cetera, et cetera. We make hundreds of decisions. Some of these decisions are tiny and, and pretty inconsequential, honestly. Other decisions have enormous consequences for yourself and others around you, for better or worse. Do you realize you could destroy your life and others lives around, uh, others, other lives around you with just one or two bad decisions? You have that power. 
So every day we're making hundreds of decisions. Have you ever thought about the fact that each of the decisions that you're making is being made from a particular orientation in, as it relates to you and God? Here's what I mean by that. A particular orientation as it relates to you and God. There, there's only, only three possible orientations. You are either operating in conscious submission to God or you are operating in conscious rebellion against God or you are operating in thoughtless indifference toward God. I think we're always in one of those three places. Conscious submission to him, conscious rebellion against him, or thoughtless indifference toward God. Imagine if you made every decision of your day from a starting place of conscious submission to God. In other words, trusting God's authority over you. How many decisions would you make differently? Why don't we? Because we think we know what we want. We think we know hokmah that will lead us to the good life. Do you see? We're not humble enough. We're not humble enough to come into relationship with God as a dependent child with a loving heavenly father. What this verse is telling us is that every decision we make from the posture of the fear of the Lord is moving us closer and closer to fullness of life because it's how we operate in harmony with God himself who is the author of life. There's no life apart from God. There's no life when you're running in the opposite direction of the God of the universe. So we move toward him. We fear the Lord. We, we, we work in harmony with God himself. Now, as I'm starting to kind of land this plane a little bit, okay, as I'm starting to wind this down, I've got to take you to one more place in Proverbs, maybe the most known section of Proverbs. For many of you, this will be very familiar. Turn backwards in your Bible a few pages of Proverbs chapter three. Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six. And and I wanted to highlight this because I want you to see how these well-known verses are saying the exact same thing as Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They're just expanding on it using different words. So here is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. This is the application for us this morning. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now, I've got to make one note here. Um, acknowledge in English is a little bit of a wimpy word compared to the Hebrew that underlies it. it. It might be better translated submit to. And in fact, I think that's the way the NIV actually renders it. In all your ways, submit to him. Acknowledge in English just kind of feels like tipping your hat to God. That's not what this verse is calling you to do. It says trust in the Lord with, with a little bit of yourself with all of you, with all of your inner being, trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding. That's your constant temptation with every decision you make. Instead, in everything you do, all your ways, submit to, submit to him and he will make your paths or he will make straight your paths. Now, this is in essence, this first part, the fear of the Lord lived out practically. What does it look like to fear the Lord? Trust in him with all your heart. Don't lean on your understanding. All your ways acknowledge him. This last line is in essence another description of fullness of life. God making straight paths. Fullness of 
life. This is the same message as Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is what leads us to fullness of life. I'm going to put a little bit of a principle just to kind of summarize all this on the screen. The fundamental, the fundamental task of life is to properly orient yourself to God. If you only thought about that one thing your whole life, that'd be an amazing life. My job, my fundamental job as a human being is to properly orient myself to God. He is true north. He is life. He's saying, this way to life. And my job is to properly orient myself to true north. Guys, there's no other life source. And you can spend 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of your life trying to find a life source in relationships and substances and entertainment, music and wealth and all this other stuff. You know what you're going to find at the end of the day? Just ask the sages of the Old Testament. You're going to find there's only one life source. You're going to find the fear of the Lord is the source of all wisdom. So, here's where most of us are, if we're honest. God has only a tiny piece of our conscious thought. That's true of me. I think the reason for that is God has only a small corner of our hearts. And God, in, in his love through this text, would say, that will not do, not if you want to find life, <laughs> not, if you, not if you want to be the kind of human being that, that, that has life and life even overflows and spills out of you. I cannot have only a small corner of your heart, Jesus would say. So what would it take for you to give him everything? That's the question, and I'm ending with this. What would it take? What would it take for me, for me and you to give him everything? He, he, here's the thing. Here's the thing. No one will give themselves wholly to God until you are convinced that God loves you without condition or even reason. This is the irony of fearing the Lord. Until you know, until you believe like at the core of you that you're loved by God, you're never gonna move toward him. You're only gonna move away from him. You're only gonna try to follow your own path. Because actually fearing God, remember, means to move toward him relationally, not away from him. And it is God's love that draws you in. We are gonna practically live this out in this moment through the Lord's table. And so I wanna invite you to take out the elements of the Lord's Supper. Hopefully you received them when you came. And if you didn't, feel free to get up and grab one out there in the arcade. If you're at home, take out the cup and the bread that you have available to you and you go ahead and start opening these. But, but I hope you can open these and listen at the same time because I wanna apply the table to the concepts we've heard from God through his word this morning. The elements that you hold in your hands right now are a very tangible expression of God's love for you. 
I want you to think for a moment of all that it took for you to have this in your hand right now. And I don't mean the packaging and the delivery trucks and all that. I'm going way back further than that. It took the death of Jesus Christ. It took his body and his blood. It took a community of faith that found life in him and passed it along to the next generation who became a community of faith, who found life in Jesus and passed it on to the next generation, who became a community of life, community finding life in Jesus, passed it on to the next generation, and on and on and on for over 2,000 years so that you could hold this in your hand right now and know tangibly that Jesus chose you. He chose you to hold this. He chose you to know his love. He opened up your mind to receive. And what you're holding in your hand right now is a tangible expression of God's love for you. When love came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, he did what you and I could never do. He feared the Lord. From his first breath to his last breath, he submitted his will to the Father. He held nothing back. How could Jesus do that? Because he knew the Father's love for him. He was so confident in it. He trusted the Father to such a degree that the Father said, you go into the cross, Jesus said, all right. It's not what I would have chosen for my path, but you're God. You're the Father, I'm the Son. Even in Jesus's Godness, he submitted to the Father. He feared the Lord. And when you know that you are unconditionally and perfectly loved by Jesus. There is no reason not to trust him with everything. If you're gonna trust him with your salvation, trust him with your hundreds of decisions today. If you're gonna trust him with your salvation, trust him with your marriage, trust him with your children, trust him with your grandchildren, trust him with your career, trust him with your sexuality, trust him with everything that is you, trust him. And so here's what this table represents for us this morning. It is the unconditional and perfect love of Jesus for us that frees us up to fear the Lord the right way, to bring us toward, not away. Will you receive it? Maybe some even for the first time this morning, God has just removed something from your heart and your eyes and you have eyes to see and ears to hear and you believe. Take the table with us, trust in Christ. And for all of us this morning, these elements are reminders. They're tangible expressions of the deep, deep love of God for us. Let us eat the bread with joy. And let us drink the cup with joy.